Welcome to Reverb, everyone. My name is Calvin Pollock, and I'm joined by Alex Helberg and Sophie Wadzak. How are you guys doing? Hello. Doing well. Wow. Do, feeling the spirit of the holiday season coursing throughout the digital digital wavelengths. We are, uh, yeah, we are here just a few days before Christmas, Christmas week, and we wanted to do j just a quick show checking in on sort of the culture surrounding Christmas, and we'll get in a minute to why we wanted to do this, but I just wanted to ask both of you, Alex and Sophie, before I launch into my Christmas thesis, um, generally, what are your opinions on the culture surrounding Christmas in terms of what you dislike about it? What do you find uh, cumbersome or troublesome or troubling? Start. Let's start with you, Sophie. Well, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I enjoy Christmas very much. I think it's a wonderful time of year, and I enjoy all of the um, pageantry. Um, but I also recognize that a lot of it is rooted in a pagan tradition, and those are the things that I cherish about it. So I um, resent and find very cumbersome the... I guess the assumption that if you enjoy Christmas, you're somehow Christian, that I think the conflation between like a lot of the ways we celebrate Christmas and also the, you know, religious tradition or that people like, I don't like people assuming I'm very Christian because I love Christmas because I'm not, but I still love Christmas. Um, and a lot of, you know, as a parent, uh, I observe a lot of goofy stuff going on. There's a lot of pressure for not only a lot of presents, but like now there's advent calendars that all have gifts like Lego toys for every day like there's a lot a lot of gifting happens it seems like more and more and that's a lot to um, either keep up with or combat as a parent Alex how, how about you my my distaste for this or the things that I find distasteful about the season stem mostly from the weather honestly and I mean this kind of goes back to what Sophie was saying about you know what we call Christmas uh is was not you know the the practices associated with Christmas were not always associated with a Christian tradition. They were, you know, derived from these like pagan traditions that primarily were set up because winter is depressing and it is it is like brutal to have to stay inside and be isolated from uh, from everyone. Again, we have no idea what that's like right now, but um, but but Christmas was always it, and the traditions that it kind of spawned from were designed to bring people together to, you know, put up lights and decorate things, you know, so that we didn't feel the sort of depressing after effects of the season. So, so I would say it, it, for me, it's primarily a climate thing. Um, that's, that's usually what gets me down about the season. And, uh, and actually I have to agree with Sophie. It's uh, Christmas is kind of a lift for me uh, typically. So, so I'm trying to get in the spirit this year, but it's obviously with COVID, it's a little bit more difficult. Well, that that those are both fantastic answers. I I agree with a lot of that um, on on what makes Christmas troubling or makes Christmas kind of a difficult season to get through. Um, now, I want to expand this out a little bit and also take us to sort of more contemporary uh, aspects of Christmas culture. So, moving from as Sophie talked about paganism to Christianity um, to kind of our modern society and our modern institutions. So I just want to uh, put uh, two two events uh, before uh, your ears and, and our listeners' ears. So during the holiday season of 2005, if we go back 15 years, 2005, December 16th to be exact, James Risen and Eric Lichtblau broke a massive Pulitzer Prize-winning story in the New York Times. Uh, People might remember this story. It was headlined, quote, Bush lets U.S. spy on callers without courts. Okay. So this was like the big warrantless wiretapping story during the Bush administration, holiday season right. 2005. That was his, that, that was, this, that was his gift to America was. Yes, that uh, was his gift. Yeah, yeah. His, his <laughs> gift to America, George W. Bush, letting the U.S. Uh, spy on callers without courts. So, so here's how that story began. Quote, Washington, December 15th, months after the September 11th attacks, President Bush secretly authorized the National Security Agency to eavesdrop on Americans and others inside the United States to search for evidence of terrorist activity without the court approved warrants ordinarily required for domestic spying, according to government officials. End quote. 
And so in response to this story's publication, um, as described in a lot of books on the subject, uh, including a book that I'm about to quote from, uh, Mark Hertzgard, who wrote Braveheart's Whistleblowing in the Age of Snowden, quote, the Bush White House was furious, and they were determined to find and punish whoever had leaked these details to the New York Times. And so uh, a bunch of stuff happened after that with the FBI going after whistleblowers, uh, uh, storming into their houses, and so on. Now, so, so all of that happened holiday season 2005. Meanwhile, also during the holiday season of 2005, Carol Abersold and Shonda Bell self-published a book called The Elf on the Shelf, which they would later develop into a massively popular line of toy products. So this is from the Wikipedia for The Elf on the Shelf book, for those not familiar. Quote, The Elf on the Shelf was written in 2004 by Carol Abersold and daughter Shonda Bell. Bell suggested they write a book about an old tradition of an elf sent from Santa who came to watch over them at Christmas time. The story describes how Santa's, quote, scout elves hide in people's homes to watch over events. Once everyone goes to bed, the scout elf flies back to the North Pole to report to Santa the activities, good and bad, that have taken place throughout the day. Before the family wakes up each morning, the scout elf flies back from the North Pole and hides. By hiding in a new spot each morning around the house, the scout elf plays an ongoing game of hide-and-seek with the family. The Elf on the Shelf explains that scout elves get their magic by being named and being loved by a child. In the back of each book, families have an opportunity to write their elf's name and the date that they adopted it. Once the elf uh, is named, the scout elf receives its special Christmas magic, which allows it to fly to and from the North Pole. The book tells how the magic might disappear if the scout elf is touched. So the rule for the Elf on the Shelf states, quote, there's only one rule that you have to follow, so I will come back and be here tomorrow. Please do not touch me. My magic might go, and Santa won't hear all I've seen or I know. Although families are told not to touch their scout elf, they can speak to it and tell it all their Christmas wishes so that it can report back to Santa accurately. End quote. So I put together these seemingly... Uh, disparate details from the early 2000s, the height of the post-9-11 war on terror, to make a very simple argument. I think our contemporary Christmas traditions, like the Elf on the Shelf, have helped to culturally legitimize mass surveillance policies um, and, and the war on whistleblowers, right? Uh, because you're not supposed to touch the Elf. Uh, you're not supposed to inquire where the Elf is. Um, and in fact, that that takes away the elf's magic. And so I think these cultural traditions actually help us in part to understand why we haven't seen policy change in these areas, um, because we're still doing things that legitimize the idea of a surveillance state. So what do you, what do you both think of this argument? I mean, to me, it's kind of fascinating that the, I did not know that those two things happened in the same year. Like that yep. is that that to me is pretty pretty wild, <laughs> a pretty crazy coincidence. Um, and I mean, I think that that year is significant for a number of different reasons, which is what makes sort of post 9-11 surveillance culture so strange is that this is also kind of the uh, w when big data is actually starting to gain like some traction as a thing that we use to base our technological infrastructure on, right? Like that's you know, what makes the internet profitable is data collection on user experience and, and user activities and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it kind of makes sense to me that, like, there's this kind of cultural ambient feeling that, you know, surveillance is this necessary force, uh, you know, if we are going to remain safe, secure, but also profitable in, uh, in this kind of an age. Um, and to me, that kind of makes the, sense. You have to love it to... <laughs> Like you have to don't love question it. Don't touch it. <laughs> who is spying on you? And the best way to love it is not to touch it, but let it spy on you all the time. And it's like I find a very strange division of like it's an imbalanced relationship. If we take this elf as like an entity, like you have to love it, and you loving it gives it its magic, and it's allowed to watch you constantly. 
and you cannot touch it. Like, that's uh, weird, I think. That's weird and strange to me. There's and something very, very weird about touching as the as the taboo. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's your toy. I mean, it reverses the traditional power relationship between a child and their toy. The toy plays yes. with you. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. And if you think about, you know, p- parents with this tradition out, Early on, early days, like it is very difficult to show a three or four year old a cute little elf doll. Don't touch it. If you touch this doll, Santa won't like you anymore. Like that's a lot. And I think that it's uh, we need to ask ourselves why what, um, you know, for kids, right? Play is work. Play is how they learn about the world. That's well-established and accepted among you know psychologists and uh and that's how they learn about stuff so so to kind of equip this one instance of play with like all this real world power and implication um for little children who are still kind of figuring out how the world works um seems i would say irresponsible um to put it mildly, I yeah, would say. that that feels that feels charitable almost. But yes, I agree. I'm trying to be charitable because I have very strong <laughs> feelings about this particular tradition. Yeah, no. Uh, I, so I think I all it. of this strengthens the metaphor here, right? So if we think about um, in the early days of the war on terror, so immediately after 9/11, one of the first things uh, that George W. Bush told the public was to get out there and shop. If you want yep. to um, prove that the terrorists haven't won, uh, you will keep shopping because there was actual, you know, economic panic after after the attacks, and there was a need for uh, consumer behavior to kind of, uh, you know, lift the economy and lift the GDP. Yeah, it's fascinating because that has always been kind of one of the great markers of the legitimation of any sort of like American uh, disciplinary regime, right? Or or any sort of, I guess, like governing structure uh, of capitalism writ large, right? Like if the economy is doing well, that means the system works. If people are shopping, if there's economic activity, that means that things are going great. And there's no bubbles that are continually inflating that, you know, might burst like three years later or so uh, <laughs> that might have anything to do with the economic system that we live under. But, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. As long as we're shopping, it's all good. And then this issue of not being allowed to touch the elf, uh, but at the same time it being this tantalizing toy kind of in in the room or in different parts of the house throughout the day, uh, I think the surveillance state functions very similarly because there's no doubt that um, a lot of the kind of iconography of it, the sort of visual rhetoric of it, the even the architecture of like the NSA headquarters, um, and a lot of uh, other institutional structures that, that do surveillance are intended to uh, create fear and create awe and, mm-hmm. and wonder. And so that, that naturally inspires you to want to uh, learn more, see it, or see behind the, uh, the walls, so to speak. Right. Um, but we're not supposed to. So yeah. you're, you're both to, you're both supposed to be normalized by it and tantalized by it, but not give in to the impulse to actually learn about it. Well, it's important to remember the positive incentive behind it too, right? Like the elf represents the promise of more gifts, the promise yes. of of material possessions, and so by by not playing with this toy right now, or what seems to be a toy right now, you are ensuring it is a toy. It's a doll. I know. <laughs> You're ensuring the promise of more play and, you know, with other things that you want. Just don't play with this one right now uh, because it's watching you. (laughs) And don't do anything else bad. But it's just, it's, uh, I would say, a little tricky to say, like, he's here to make sure you don't do anything bad. And here's one more thing you're not supposed to be bad about. Like, it's like, it seems intentionally tempting. (laughs) Yes. Um, Just like whistleblowing. In in, a, in an age of mass surveillance, like yeah, people are gonna want to blow the whistle on this stuff, uh, right. but right. often the harshest surveillance is on the whistleblowers. Um, in right. fact, like virtually all of the time, uh, yeah. in 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 all three post nine eleven administrations, um, 
Go ahead, Sophie. Well, is not the elf like he's he's kind of like a whistleblower on the kids. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like he's the one who's supposed to blow the whistle to Santa on the kids doing something bad. Um is that not how you would interpret what his role is or I'm not sure I agree. Is? I think maybe he is a spy for Santa. Uh, more than sure. a whistleblower. I feel like whistleblowing sure. has to be oriented to the public. Uh, yeah. This this um, would be like if the elf on the shelf was like a was like a salt, you know, like an organize a secret organizer elf that was you know in uh, within the ranks of the other elves uh, who all of a sudden went public with all of the uh, workplace uh, safety violations that the North Pole is. Uh, <laughs> if that's the metaphor that we want to go, I think that's how Elf can be a whistleblower. Yeah, he could be that's a whistleblower, fair. but I right. think as he functions in the story, and you know, as the toy is marketed to parents, he's more of a spy for the yeah. boss. He's he's still serving power uh, ultimately. Yeah. But my point is, if again, if we take um, the intention of toys like this to be somewhat, not to say that all toys have to be educational, but like they're helping children to understand the world and and learn how to interact with it. It sends a weird mixed message about when tattling and spying is cool and when it's not. Absolutely. Um, that I think, you know, we three adult humans can parse it, but I think that for the age of child who is subjected to this tradition, um, I would find it, if I were a child in those in this circumstance, I would find that a little unclear. Yeah. No, I think you're I think you're right on though, Sophie. It's like like the message that it's sending is uh, you know, tattle on your sister, not your boss. Like that's right. to me kind of like what that communicates, right? Yeah, don't absolutely. touch the don't touch the security camera that's watching you while you work. And that's what I'm saying. It's like a very, very early opportunity to sort of lay the groundwork of like look to the right and left of you, but do not look above you exactly. in terms of who you're criticizing and, and who you like have the authority to like um, to discipline or to participate in disciplining. Um, Disciplinary visibility only goes in one direction. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so as we get into this, so obviously we are not the first people to make these kinds of arguments about the elf on the shelf. Um, in fact, I corresponded with a scholar uh, named Professor Laura Pinto, who has done work on this. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of her work on the subject in a second. But I thought it could be fun just to look at some animated clips from the Elf on the Shelf YouTube channel just to get a sense of how they are um, kind of uh, developing this universe. And they're still putting out new. These are apparently new animated clips from like the past few years. So let me I'm just going to share my screen. Bear with me. All right. <laughs> With Scout Elf Return Week right around the corner, the elves have been in training to prepare for their upcoming visit to your home. They've been learning about the best flight routes to take as they travel around the globe. And they're studying hard to stay up to date on the newest trends in Scout so Elf fashion, elves which have been added have to, to this year's clause. No, they're stock still. They're all they're all just posed in in positions. So it's like you know, there's like a Santa Claus in the background that's clearly giving them marching orders. But they're all just sitting there with their arms crossed in their way. Just just Isn't they're weird, like side eyed. <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about the 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 social semiotics of the yeah, the, 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 the elf face. <laughs> the elf yeah, gaze. the elf gaze. Yeah. All right. Couture collection. <laughs> Look, it's the Arctic Wind Simulator, where the scout elves and reindeer practice taking off and landing. And of course, no workout regimen is complete without training on the North Pole's hardest obstacle course. Check out those biceps. Mark your calendars, friends. In a few weeks, Scout Elf Return Week will be here. The elves can't wait to see you soon. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> okay, so that's inside look at Scout Elf Training Camp. Currently has about two million views. That's from twenty fifteen. It's it's what's so funny about this? I, this is gonna this is gonna come off as potentially a little glib, but like the the part at the end where they're like showing the like workout equipment and stuff, and the fact that they call it Scout Elf Training Camp, like. Just, I think it was primed by you talking with us about uh, post 9-11 uh, security culture, Calvin. But that totally reminded me of those videos of like the Taliban training camps where yes. they have the they have the monkey bars that they're for some reason they always have monkey bars. Like monkey bars are the best way routes. to train. Yes, they're looking yes. at flight routes for oh God's sake. God. It's messed up. The only thing, and that's like if you changed like the this the music 
on this. It, like the only thing that's Christmassy about this is like the color scheme and the like little jingle jangle in the background. Like you could change that very quickly, and this would have no like the idea that this is being pitched as something like oh fun and jolly is like really messed up. I think yeah, super messed up. Uh, yeah, the working out the the fashion part, and then also the yeah, like we were saying that just these uh, frozen. Uh, faces of the elves just <laughs> just uh, littering the f- each frame yes. uh, where it's just like this side eye s- just strange like I'm am I watching you or am I not um, very chilling yep always always happy in their task which you know when you're when you're that happy at work um, you're immediately sus no matter what job you're doing absolutely all right so video number two this is another short one So this one's called Scout Elves Take Flight for Scout Elf Return Week. So let's watch this. Scout Elf Return Week is here, and my elves are leaving the North Pole and heading for their homes around the world. As you can see, the Scout Elf Command Center is a blizzard of activity as we monitor all the elves taking off, landing, and traveling around the globe. Look up. You might be able to spot an elf in the sky near you. Looks like several elves are soaring past the Statue of Liberty right now, and some have made it to London to keep... If this really happened, these elves would be shot down. I was just going to say... They're hostile, hostile projectiles in U.S. airspace right now. <laughs> yeah, they're flying near tall buildings. Just wait, it gets worse. I'm with Big Ben. Looks like Christmas spirit is alive and well in Mount Rushmore. My scout elf superstars are even taking over Hollywood before heading home for the holidays. Looks like this one is back already. Scout elf return week is finally here. Enjoy Christmas with your scout elf friends. <laughs> so. Yeah, so they fly um, very close to uh, uh, tall U.S. skyscrapers. Um, they are. Uh, I like how it's like in, it's international. Statue of Liberty, Big Ben, Hollywood, Mount Rushmore. That's the needle. The needle in Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. The only it's foreign all the, countries are are the yeah. U.K. and Canada. Yep. Um, the only countries apparently that have christmas that's right but but why are we celebrating um like unregulated flight near tall civilian infrastructure (laughs) again yeah the iconography is just like this weird mix of it's like playing both sides of the field where it's like they're showing they're showing uh just for the since you know this is an audio medium you didn't get to see uh, like Elf Centcom, uh, the like massive, uh, <laughs> like yeah, the, like, that's like, right. Control the, ma- the massive headquarters center. where they have like <laughs> you know ge- uh, ge- uh, geolocated um, maps that that allow for uh, precise flight patterns and flight paths. Yep. yep. And then, but then it's the other side of the field too, because they're yeah flying close to tall buildings and like. Yeah, I just boy, it's really activating a lot of a lot of problematic frames that like I don't know. I mean, obviously this is supposed to be innocent and it's supposed to be anodyne, but like I don't know when when you're primed in the way that we have been for <laughs> for understanding the role of Elf on the Shelf in the U.S. cultural milieu. Um, yeah, you can't help but notice these things. So the last clip is. Um... It's from this year, November 24th, 2020. It's called The Elf on the Shelf's Night Before Christmas Song and Music Video. Oh, and, and this one, I think, gets more into some of the cultural and economic dimensions, like less the national security implications, um, <laughs> but I think is is really revelatory as well. So uh, enjoy this. Awesome. Heavy air, air quotes around enjoy. When the day has finally ended And the kids are fast asleep And the house is good and quiet Without one single peep And with Santa's sleigh now nearing And my last report all filed My Christmas Eve is getting My last report all filed <laughs> Yeah, this is the, uh, the, 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 the working stiff elf <laughs> Sorry No, you're good 
just Is that a little kid out of bed? Launch a sturdy candy cable, quickly leap onto the table, shush the dog and calm the kitty as the mayhem mounts. Step on broken decorations, lower lofty expectations, lure the kid back to his pillow, every second counts. Get the elf pets at the ready, hold on tight and hold on steady, have to hurry, have to not lose heart. Don't give up and don't get tired, stay awake and stay inspired, but my festive plan is falling all apart. It's the night before Christmas. But it's not how this should go The night before Christmas I'm wondering will Santa even show And what to my wandering elf eyes does appear A red and gold sleigh with a host of reindeer Santa! To my happy heart a-pounding down the chimney He comes bounding, eyes a-twinkle, snaps his fingers And it's quite a sight With his magic overflowing Christmas spirits only growing Santa knows the way to make it all alright The night before Christmas The best that we've had yet The night before Christmas Is clearly the most cursed Santa I'm sorry <laughs> no, I'm that sorry yeah, that's like they tried they tried making an animated Kurt Russell Santa and just really failed at it, boy. Um yeah, okay, let's just finish this. Here's a year I won't forget. But just before leaving, we stop and take in what a magical season and night this has been. Then we take off and fly past the stars shining bright. Merry Christmas to all. for me <laughs> well i hate it do you notice how silent santa is yeah he's like Let's... this strange i i i don't want to so that this is potentially problematic to um to kind of exoticize uh social problems but I, like i gotta say he reminds me of like the stereotype of like a central Asian dictator or like a you know what I mean it's just like this yeah. silent no I, image yeah um yeah. like a figurehead I feel like even the elf is like is he gonna come I don't know like yes it just seems like a weird dynamic like even the elf isn't sure if he believes that Santa's actually gonna get there but like isn't that the whole thing like I thought you worked for him like haven't you been visiting him every every single day like I don't know if he's going to get here or not. Like this idea of like setting it up is like, it's so precarious kid. This like, is what I was going to say. Yes. Don't do it right. Like if you touch that elf, it is canceled. And if you get out of bed, uh, -uh like it just seems like it's a lot of pressure for a little kid to feel like if they fuck it up, like Christmas might be canceled. And it's funny because um, it like, this is maybe like a little off the plot, but like this harkens way back to like the origin of a lot of our solstice celebrations, which were like, please sun return. Like we have to do this ritual so that the sun comes back. And if you don't, maybe it won't. And like, I feel like it's weirdly authentic in that way that it's like bringing back that feeling of like, you are responsible for perpetuating the return of the sun or like, you know, the return of Santa or like whatever it is, like it's on you child and be afraid like it just it's not um those are not the emotions that i wish to evoke uh, on christmas at christmas time like what i what i think is fascinating is the level of stress this is what i think you're getting at sophie in part is the level of stress that the elf is under in this yeah. in this portrayal the elf himself on the shelf, on the shelf. is <laughs> is constantly putting out fires i mean he mm. is just Managing and and honestly, like, not to beat the metaphor into the ground, but this kind of makes me think of like, this must be what it's like to work in an agency like the NSA, where you're like, there are a million threats at all times. Okay, we have to get this intel to this agency. We have to get this intel to this agency. You can understand how it would lead to whistleblowers, because they are so uh, uh, stressed. Not to like, you know take away the fact that they're highly paid, that it's a position of a lot of power, but um, certainly like the lower level employees of some of these agencies, uh, 
this may be weirdly what it's like. Like you are just constantly putting out fires um, all for this like uh, higher power that seems to never really speak to you, but you have to show ultimate deference to just like this bizarre, like speechless uh, Santa in this video. Um, And of course it also makes me think of like gig workers in the current economy constantly putting out fires both in their personal lives and in their their jobs and their work um this is just like the current condition of precarity and and stress and i think um my whole theory about the elf on the shelf is that it is not for children it's for the parents like you're supposed to identify with that elf as a parent like oh i know just what he's going through and like feel that pressure to like make it perfect and like oh there's so many oh no, there's so much going on. Like, and I just feel like this is a tradition that is being like pitched as kids love it. But like, I don't know that kids do love it. And I believe that it is for parents, which is just, I think a little, like it's fine if parents want to have their own thing, but like be straight up about it and don't pretend that this is something that a child should be delighting in is like a little creepy spy watching them. I don't like it. Yeah. I, I sorry. I just one one last point on that. That last video I just have to say is an absolute aesthetic nightmare. Um, in so in so many ways, not yeah. only not only the animation, uh, you know, just being incredibly cringy, but like I don't know. It's got that. It's got a particular style of like vocal uh, vocal audio production, yeah. and maybe it's just because like we've been doing this podcast for a while, and I've like you know <laughs> gotten more practice in doing like vocal audio production but like just that where there's just like a little bit of auto-tune on the voice like you can hear yeah. it's just but and it feels like it was kind of computer generated like the voice is <laughs> just a yeah, little like too too smooth yeah like like weird i've been i was also trying to put my finger on like what asshole does this person sound like like i <laughs> it's really really bad yeah, yeah like, just like overproduced yes like yeah yeah, it's it's brutal. No, I, I did want to get a little bit into some of the analysis that Dr. Laura Pinto and some some co-authors and colleagues did on the Elf on the Shelf, specifically on how children play with it and how it's different from other kinds of toys, because I think that's really interesting to think about. So there's this article called Normalizing Panoptic Surveillance Among Children, the Elf on the Shelf uh, by Dr. Laura Elizabeth Pinto and Dr. Selena Niemerin. And uh, there's early on in the article, um, the authors kind of break down that difference between how this toy is played with versus others. And they say, quote, the difference is that in other games, the child role plays a character or the child imagines herself within a play world of the game. But the role play does not enter the child's real world as part of the game. As well, in most games, the time of play is delineated while the game goes on. And the play to which the rules apply typically does not overlap with the child's real world. Elf on the Shelf presents a unique and prescriptive form of play that blurs the distinction between playtime and real life. Children who participate in play uh, with the Elf on the Shelf doll have to contend with rules at all times during the day. They may not touch the doll and they must accept that the doll watches them at all times with the purpose of reporting to Santa Claus. So it's, yeah, it's no longer... It's no longer that 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 boundary between the real world and the play world is broken down. And while it's still, you know, it still feels magical, it still feels kind of like a game. I mean, that's the thing. Like, as a child, I don't know if I would be able to actually discern that, like, this is because play in some ways serves that kind of metaphorical function. Right. Like, I mean, children have active imaginations where they, you know, they can believe that their stuffed animal, you know, has a personality and, you know, like loves them back and things like that, which is, which I think is pretty anodyne and innocent. Um, But like, but yeah, this is one of those things where it's just whenever it's like you're playing a game with too many rules where it all of a sudden isn't fun because the entire game is just about self-discipline and that's, and that's just not like a, that's not a fun game. Like there's no... Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't even think the word game is appropriate here. Like, if a kid believes it's real and it's happening in real life, then for them it is not a game. And so we can talk about it like it's a game. But I think that for a child that that's not a fair label. 
It's like, right. is the entire conceit of Santa a game or is it part of their real life until they know right. that it's not real? Right. Well, right. and I and I think to, to the point about questioning, question, because, yeah, for children, this this, you know, I think inherently functions as a kind of play. As Sophie said before, you know, play is work for children. This is how they sort of like structure their knowledge about the world and, you know, come to form expectations about how the world operates. Um, and I think there's there's this really interesting quote that comes later in the uh, later in the Laura Pinto article. This is down on 56, uh, where she's she's quoting from a Huffington Post article uh, where uh, Wendy Bradford is talking about her, um, you know, t- her children insist on ringing the doorbell before entering their home to make sure that the elf on the shelf doll Chippy is prepared for their arrival, thus underscoring their awareness and acceptance of the surveillance apparatus. And then that block quote from Wendy Bradford, where she writes, I long for the days when Santa's helpers were mystical, magical, mysterious, and unseen little people, and not some overpriced brand, but the times they are a-changing. If I must participate in this new tradition, I choose to let the elf serve its purpose, to set on a shelf and encourage my children to be, quote, nice. Parents need all the help they can get. Let the elf help you. And again, I think this is, I mean, this is kind of giving away, though, like what the elf on the shelf is, is like really about, right? And it's, I mean, it's, it's for, again, I don't want to, I, I really, really don't want to come off like I am like chiding parents for like wanting some extra help with like, you know, helping their kids behave and whatnot. But like, this seems like it's doing far more harm than good, uh, especially just given the sort of like consumer consumerist apparatus that's behind it all. And it's encouraging uh, it's encouraging being nice and good behavior with the incentive structure in mind that it's like, well, it's because you'll get more products. It's because we will buy you more things if you are good, which yeah. inherently is like a very dangerous lesson <laughs> to teach to children, I think, as, from a moral perspective. I think so. And I also think it's weird that like that, even that sense, like if I have to participate, like you don't. And I think it's really strange that like, well, it's a Christmas thing, so we got to do it. It's good. We're assuming it's good because it has the aesthetics of a Christmas tradition and we love Christmas. So it must be great. Like that itself is, I think, um, I don't know. I get really disappointed in other parents. Like nobody is forcing you to do this. And it's not like it was like ordained from on high by Santa. It's just some, (laughs) some, white ladies who are trying to make a buck off of you like it's not like but do the parents believe it too like it just seems like people get like so into this like you think this is real like these are just some ladies like they just made it up it's like it's like similar to how people talk about like, like abolishing ice like well we can't like it didn't even exist 20 years ago like you don't have to do elf on a shelf it's there's <laughs> no reason why you have to and Santa Claus isn't going to be mad at you. Like, it just seems like a weird, like, it's gone, it's gotten a little out of control. The extent to which, like, the parents seem like they believe it somehow. Absolutely, Sophie. I, I mean, I think to push on that question a little bit of, like, why do people do this? Uh, I think um, Pinto and Nimarin do a really good job of uh, talking about, you know, this kind of central concept from surveillance studies of the Panopticon and how... So, so the Panopticon was a prison design developed by Jeremy Bentham, 18th century, um, that basically allowed the guards of the prison to uh, see inmates um, at all times. Uh, at any time, the, the central guard tower could view any one of the inmates. And so this forced the inmates to comply uh, based on the idea that they didn't know it at any time whether they were under surveillance or not. And so... Then in the 20th century, Michel Foucault uh, wrote a lot about how this idea has actually structured our entire uh, modern societies, that most of our institutions in terms of um, how buildings are set up, hospitals, schools, uh, tend to uh, follow a panoptic design, and that this starts to affect our, our ways of thinking about the world and about society. And um, there's this idea of panoptic performativity, Pinto and Niemeren talk about, which is where you start to actually perform the panopticism uh, in your own everyday life, um, basically kind of internalizing uh, the gaze, the panoptic gaze, but also turning it on 
your fellow members of society. And I think that's that's a lot of what explains the social pressure to do some of these things because other parents are, I mean, I, I think totally we should push back on it, but I think that's got to be where it comes from, like sort of seeing uh, family, friends, like photos on social media of the elf um, and, you know, and, and it just becoming this kind of status marker uh, that people use and, and that kind of pressures other people to do it. But also this panoptic performativity, of course, occurs at the level of kids, too, that they start to internalize the gaze and they start to um, do this work on each other, on their siblings and so yes. on. And that's what I find is like the idea is like, oh, it's a help parents. It'll help your kids behave better. But I think that long term and this is not just for children, but like the idea that like you behave because somebody might be watching you misbehave. Where's the incentive to behave when you're not being watched? Like, are we being good to be rewarded with presence because nobody caught you being bad? Or are we trying to teach kids to like act and behave responsibly and to care for one another, whether or not there's an audience like kids, I think in this, um, like kids are being conditioned to be being watched constantly anyway. Like, you know, people are taking pictures of their kids all the time. I take pictures of my kids all the time. Like I think they're adorable and I know that soon they won't want to talk to me. And so I want to have like pictures of them being adorable and whatever, like I do it, but I think, you know, they don't need another, or I don't know. I just feel like the idea is like, you, you behave yourself when you're being watched. So it's helpful now to have an extra set of eyes because that's what gets kids to behave is the idea that they're being surveilled and not because it's good to not do harmful things inherently. Mm -hmm. Like that part, it does not, like I've kind of been observing this tradition since it was magically created. Again, remember, it's not actually Santa, magically created by some white ladies, you know, from wherever <laughs> they're from. Like... There's not a lot of um, meat to the lesson here. Like, being good is good because you should be good and kind to one another. Like, nope, that's not... I'm not seeing that as part of this at no. all. And so I don't... I, I like, question how uh, useful this is for children. And and just to just to kind of uh, uh, underscore one of the points that that Laura makes in the article, and and I think it's drawing from uh, Laura Pinto is uh, does a lot of other really good work in education research. Um, just to kind of underscore that point about the social pressure, right, um, and and the teaching of morality that Sophie was talking about as being a punitive one rather than a rather than one that's based on you know you should do this because you know being nice to people makes other people feel good and then they'll want to make you feel good and you know there's like a it's a it's a, a virtuous cycle in that way. Um, because she talks a lot about this being in, instituted in schools. This is actually right. being like institutionalized in classrooms where entire yeah. classrooms full of children who may or may not celebrate Christmas are, you know, being subjected to the watchful eye of the elf on the shelf. Because, you know, again, as somebody who has taught in middle and high schools before, I sympathize with the, you know, the, the urge to have another set of eyes on you know a potentially restive group of students but at the same time there are better ways to institute like soft positive discipline rather than saying like you know well you know don't misbehave in class don't you know uh don't get out of your seat as if our educational you know s systems were not already uh weirdly carceral right. enough um yeah. they uh you know yeah we just need that extra we're, we're literally instituting the panopticon in schools uh just to kind of drive the metaphor home a little further absolutely for sure. And yeah, not every kid. I mean, it's it's wild, I think, how many people talk about Christmas um, in schools as if, like, every, every kid's doing that. Like, there's other things to celebrate <laughs> in the wintertime. I don't know. I think that it, I, I, it's wild to me that it's allowed in schools at all. And it, like, kind of walks this line between, like, it's Christmas. It's it's Christian. Nope. No, it's, it's, it's different. It's its own thing. Like... Which is like laying bare the fact that like most of the way we celebrate Christmas has nothing to do with Christianity, which is fine with me. But like, um, I would imagine, I would think that a lot of people who are celebrating this do think somehow it is wrapped up in 
a Christian tradition somehow. Like, I, I don't think people are questioning it very much. Um, and in which case, I don't think it belongs in schools at all. Like, I think that's like a weird, that's like you're dipping your toe in some like pretty deep and like um, potentially problematic stuff when you get into like magic in the classroom. Like, um, especially in public classrooms. Right. right. So so this gets to yeah this this yeah. gets to what I wanted to talk about next which is the the Christian um roots of some of this and and to what extent uh the surveillance gaze of Santa um mirrors the surveillance gaze of a Christian god. Um and and obviously like as you were just saying Sophie this is a sort of sticky blurry thing where Christmas is this incredibly consumerist holiday and is this has kind of been secularized into a set of traditions that that are shared by lots of people of different faiths um but it, it always kind of bears similarity or both both aesthetic and normative to uh kind of hardcore authoritarian christian morality and uh there's a great source that um, Pinto and Niemeren cite uh, this David Leone article called Surveillance and the Eye of God in a, a journal of Christian ethics. When when Pinto came out with this research, it actually kind of made a public splash. There was a lot of articles written about it um, in like the Atlantic, the Washington Post, like a fair number of um, well-circulated, like popular online media outlets. And a lot of commenters, Pinto did some research on the comments that these articles got. A lot of commenters said, what is the big deal um, if the elf is watching people, if Santa is watching people, uh, because God is already watching us? How is it different, right? And I think that's a question for us to think about. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, the the David Leon article is is super useful for this because he's not only charting the uh, sort of you know Christian origins of you know well you you'd better behave because then you know then you'll go to heaven you know kind of that long scale like, ultimate Christmas present. But again, it's that's like a that's a that's. I would say, and again, I'm being a little bit of an apologist here, but like a crass understanding of a Christian ethic, right? Like from a philosophical perspective, that's like not really what <laughs> this is all. And and David Leon actually does a really good job about how the reading of surveillance as being like the eye of God, the sort of panoptic surveillance that we're used to these days that's based on these sort of bizarre incentive structures uh, for, you know, good behavior yields, you know, a positive reward. Um, like anybody who has practiced, like, a, I think like certain sects of Christian faith will understand that it's like, it's not always just about the promise of going to heaven. It's like, you're, you're being good for good sake. And, you know, because like loving other people is, is core to that ethic because it mirrors God's love for you. Right. Like, I mean, so Leon does this really good reading of uh, the the panoptic psalm, which I can't I can't find it. Psalm number right 139 um, on page 26 of the article. Yep. He talks about that. Thou art about my path and about my bed and spiest out all of my ways. Um, so reading this, though, is like like Leon gives this really good reading where he says the psalmist discovers what it is to be known by God. Uh, and this involves both a healthy respect for the one who can, as it were, see right through human beings, and also a sense of relief that someone has noticed, is aware of the situations of life with all their uncertainty. Here is not merely cool scientific knowledge that purports to be detached and uh, technologically clinical, let alone a, a regime of instrumental control. It is a knowing that seems to engage the person in a whole way and demands to be thought of as love." Love, you know, being N.T. Wright's version of uh, Bernard Longergan's epistemology of love. It is the deepest way, mode of knowing because it is love that, while completely engaging with reality other than itself, affirms and celebrates that other than self reality. So it's not a... It's not just disciplinary. It's actually like, you know, this is the gaze of someone who cares for you rather than somebody who's looking to punish you if you do wrong. Yeah, and, and Leon kind of argues that um, so first of all, he says that Bentham cited this psalm uh, when he was creating his prison design, but it, it was kind of a in in Leon's reading a, a bastardization or a 
you know, a very partial and ideological reading of that psalm that prioritized the disciplinary kind of knowing and seeing rather than the the caring and loving kind of knowing and seeing. And and this is this like fascinating secularization and politicization of Christian ethics that's happened in in the Western world. And I would say especially in America, um, you know, since the rise of the, the the Christian right and the evangelical right and how that influenced um, the Republican Party, and then and then we get all of you know all of these war and terror policies out of that those same trends, um, where it's a it's a partial secularization. We can still use the icons of Christianity and a lot of the symbolism of Christianity to kind of impose a very top down hierarchical order, um, while ignoring any sort of egalitarian sentiment uh, in Christianity or ethics of care or love. And I think, uh, as always, it's important to—this is not a new critique of the Christian right and the evangelical right, but, like, no. that that this is this is a sect of, you know, quote-unquote religious people who worship America as God or worship capitalism as God. Because, mm-hmm. again, the incentive structures are extremely instrumental, and that's the thing to, to note here, right, is that, you know, this is <laughs> a version of God who, you know, is may or may not be based on what's actually written in the Bible, but, <laughs> you know, like the gospel of wealth people are a good example of that. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's more about, you know, behave the way that we want you to behave, otherwise you're going to be punished. And that is like, you know, that that is not an ideal that is shared by a great many of the world's Christian traditions. And it is something that is uniquely held by certain segments of, you know, the right wing of, you know, evangelical Christianity in the U.S. And I think it's important to ask why that is. I think it probably I mean, my hypothesis is that it has more to do with the underlying economic structure and the incentives that are in place for these powerful right wing Christians to uh, institute regimes of instrumental control um, over people uh, rather than, you know, saying like, actually, it's good to love thy neighbor. Yeah, that's not that's not really part of I mean, and we can see that in um, everything from, I think, Elf on a Shelf to, you know, policies that are, you know, put forth by evangelical politicians like there's nothing about loving your neighbor it's nothing that's nothing to do with it like it's very clear that like the motive is a capitalist motive and it doesn't i just the the pretense that this is like inherently good again because like because it's part of our like consumerist christmas tradition as of what five minutes ago that it's great and it's part of it and we should embrace it like the idea that anybody would say like well if i have to do this tradition i will like it's just it's so weird like this acceptance like kids accept that like they're being watched and they're being you know critiqued and evaluated parents accept also that they're being watched and critiqued and evaluated and are like asking for it and participating in it and like with these very you know instagram ready traditions it just is like a weird like from all the way up and down like everybody's like yes i'm being evaluated for my performance at christmas time like what a buzzkill like ugh, yeah i don't know absolutely no i and i think this gets to what i wanted to end end our discussion on which is um how do we shift uh to more positive holiday traditions or what are some more positive holiday traditions and and how do, and how do they kind of push against all of these sort of toxic negative currents that we've been discussing. And I think Leon gets us a lot of the way there thinking about ethics of care and love. And like, um, obviously he's not specifically talking about Christmas. He's talking about Christianity writ large, but I think in the context of Christmas, we might think about what traditions help you to actually uh, show your love for your neighbor show your care for your neighbor. Um, I think that could be an interesting thing to talk about for a couple minutes. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, you know, I try to, I think, again, I'm the parent of two small children and Christmas is a thing. And I like Christmas too. I love, you know, I love gifting them and I love celebrating with them. And I don't, you know, it's fun to look forward to that kind of stuff. And I don't want to like overthink it um, because presents are fun and new stuff is cool. And, and, you know, um, you know, that's tied up in the society that we live in. But I think, you know, 
at least what I try to emphasize is like, yeah, we can talk about gifting and giving, but like that needs to be at least a two-way street and not just what am I going to get? So like all of the, you know, time that people spent, like there's like, didn't, I think Elf on a Shelf has got this, like there's another product you can buy from the Elf on a Shelf franchise where you can like write your list to Santa and then like it's one of those like shrinky dinks you like bake it down into a little ornament or something. Like there's a lot of like kids, what do you want? What do you want? And I feel like, at least for me, I try to temper that with, and we don't do Elf on a Shelf mini Christmas list ornaments or anything, but, um, you know, what could we give somebody else? What would make somebody else happy? And maybe, you know, we, obviously it's different this year, but we usually do like cookie exchanges. Those are fun where you like bake cookies and you share them with your neighbors and like swap them around. Like that's something nice. Like the idea that like we need to be, you know, rounding up coats for a coat drive like we need to be helping people and thinking about what it must be like not to live in a warm house at Christmas time and not to you know all this stuff like um it can be you know it's not maybe as Instagram ready to show like a big old paper sack of old scarves you rounded up as it is to like show a goofy elf causing trouble or whatever but like um yeah I don't know like if 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 the season is all about gifting, then let's talk about how we gift other people has kind of been my approach to it. Um, but what about you guys? I I really like what what you said there, Sophie. I mean, my my vision of a of a holiday season that really embodies you know what what to me is like the best the best of the season um, is really just trying to move more to less less towards a culture of you know behaving well based on surveillance, uh, rather from the top down or from this sort of social imaginary self surveillance, right? Um, but more of one that's based on mutual aid, like that's kind of my that that's where I would come down and say, you know, the the idea behind mutual aid is that by helping by lifting other people up for no other reason just than the fact that it's like I, you know, maybe in a I, I'm in a position to help someone, I'm going to go help them, I'm going to, you know, reduce harm by uh, you know, uh, distributing food, uh, clothing, and other things like that to people uh, directly to people who are in need. Engaging with community organizations that are, you know, helping people out materially uh, who who need that help. These are the kinds of things that help us build a culture of of actual care and and love towards one another based not on the premise that you know it's going to be it's it's instagram optics are going to be uh pristine uh i i think that that i mean my my feelings on social media are just that like the logics and incentives of those platforms are are inherently like demonic and bad <laughs> to use to use some christian terminology there but uh I, I think that, you know, basing basing the incentive to be good to others merely on the fact that you know that you are building a culture of other people who will care and other people who may be able to reciprocate that for you someday is more powerful uh, as a type of care and as a type of holiday spirits than, uh, than any of the sort of consumerist traditions that we have on hand currently. And it's the framing, too. Like, I think... Um the way we frame like are you going to be good because somebody might see you being bad or like are we going to do this thing for this other person because it will make them feel good like the end result should be doing like a good act but i think that if you if you frame it in terms of well, well also i think there's this issue of the negative framing that is wrapped into elf in a shelf like don't do the bad thing and like if you have studied it all like how to interact with at least young children and i think that this is like the most problematic for the youngest and most impressionable children right so like if this is like pretty common knowledge if you're talking about like toddlers and stuff right like don't tell them what not to do tell them what to do because like if you tell a kid like hey stop you know drawing on the wall like they need your help to like plug into another activity so like it's not enough to say like don't do that if you're being mindful, what you should do um, is like, hey, do this instead. And maybe tell them like, it's hard for me to clean that off the walls. Let's color on paper. Like they need that kind of setup and framing to know how to act. Because I think the idea that like kids know what's bad, but they do it anyway, is not doing kids a service. Like kids are actively learning what's good and bad. So the idea that like from the get go, they should be penalized for not doing the good thing when they have not yet fully 
learned the rules is not fair. But like, so rather than a negative framing, like he's going to watch you if you do the bad stuff. So don't like, let's do this good thing for our neighbor because they need help. Or let's do this good thing. Let's send grandma a card because she'll love it. Like, I would much rather a positive framing for what to do. Like, the elf in the shelf, like, why does the elf in the shelf have to report bad behavior? Like, the elf in the shelf saw how nice you were to your sister. He's going to tell Santa about that. The elf in the shelf saw that you helped me put away the dishes. He's going to tell Santa. Like, I'm not aware of the elves reporting any good behavior. Pretty sure they just report the bad behavior. Why? If we're trying to encourage good behavior, like, why shouldn't they be, like, the positive incentive to do something that you'll get noticed for? Why is that not part of it? Like, I think what's so useful about what you're articulating here, Sophie, too, is like you're you're talking with your children about positive and negative consequences of their actions, which is another like, important thing to impart to children, even from a very early age. Right. Like actions have consequences. Sometimes they're bad if you do bad things and they can be good and they can right. make you feel good if you do good things. Yeah, I just I feel like I I know, at least with my kids, like they feel a lot more empowered when they see the good effect of a good thing that they actively did for good you know oh your neighbor will really enjoy those cookies that you made how nice you know i can't believe you did that bad thing i'm gonna tell santa <laughs> like that doesn't make them feel good that makes them feel like ashamed and that encourages this is the other thing that maybe we don't even have time to get into but like at what lengths would a child go to conceal the bad behavior that they knew was wrong but they did it anyway like are we teaching kids to be good or are we teaching kids to evade surveillance right. and i feel like if it were me thank god this is not i mean i don't think my parents maybe would have done it anyway but like i'm glad that i didn't grow up in the era of elf on a shelf but i just feel like I, kids, like, the the instance of, like, ringing the doorbell, like, let's make sure we interact so that we're being observed when we're supposed to be, and, like, how could we figure out not to, like, let's save all of our bad shit for January, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, that's, I don't know, it just seems like positive reinforcement would be much more useful long-term, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I guess in terms of, um sort of how we develop these norms and, and these traditions culturally, I think there's an interesting ambiguity, and maybe we can go out on this song, but there's an interesting ambiguity in the song Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Ooh. where... Uh, you better be good for goodness sake. Well, yes. When yes. they say that. Absolutely. But so do people read it, be good for goodness sake, like as a <laughs> as a reprimand, for goodness sake, be good. <laughs> yeah. Um, be And as, as if the definition of good is universally known both by the right. kids and the parents, or is it be good right. for the sake of goodness, right. the sake of, you know, spreading positive, uh, vibes yeah. and, uh, positivity and just like being nice and being neighborly. And I think that's, you know, increasingly in our culture or, or at least, you know, in the past few decades, um, consumer culture has really pushed this idea that there is a universal good, uh, that we all have access to, and that you simply need to be nice, not naughty, according to that obvious standard, which is never really defined. Um, right. And I think more of stuff, you know, uh, in terms of Christmas culture, like It's a Wonderful Life, where uh, this movie basically shows one person uh, the positive effect they can have on their community. Um and kind of shows the the ethics of care and uh, how much this one person knows their neighbors and, and knows their community um, in a way that if if they no longer existed, um, all of that would disappear um, and, and the negative consequences that would have, right? And so thinking about your, your role in your community in... Uh, living out an ethics of care and an ethics of love, I think, is is what we want to try to foster rather than just, uh, you know, this kind of punitive, be good, don't be bad. Yeah. 
all watched over by figurines of loving grace. I just had to insert that in there because that was my idea for an alternative episode title on the Adam Curtis tip, but I think Calvin's is better. So I just had the to make century sure. The century of the elf. We are, we are living in the century of the elf, but we don't have to. I think, um, we don't have to. I, I really, I really enjoyed, uh, Alex and Sophie, both of your, your kind of alternatives of, uh, uh, what we should be prioritizing and what we should be especially teaching kids about the Christmas season, I think is, is all really important stuff. Um, and so I guess we can, we can go out on, on this note. Uh, I did want to throw in one more um, Christmas reference. I, I came up with a little song parody. <clears throat> oh, here we go. Okay. Uh, this is about the surveillance state. Signal helps, what? signal helps, signal helps a lot. Uh, 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 use it every day. Uh, love to ride in a end-to-end encrypted data packet. Sorry. Um, catchy. Super catchy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, use Signal. In fact, uh, if we normalize using Signal instead of having an elf in all of our homes, uh, you know, that's a start. There it, you it go. Can, it can create resistant norms that aren't that aren't pro surveillance. Wonderful. I love it. I, I'm, I'm waiting to hear the full, the fully produced uh, uh, version of that song, Calvin. Signal helps. Yeah. Signal helps. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> going to have some little, like jingle belly background on that too. Right? <laughs> yeah, just to make, because it's kind of far oh, sugar, from the original. So, so we need like jingle <laughs> yeah. bells in the background to make it clear what even the joke is. <laughs> what the is. Um, that's where it needs some work, but sure. I, I appreciate being allowed to share the first draft here on the show. I appreciate it. Um, Love it. All right, folks. Well, uh, we, we do want to sincerely wish everyone a happy holidays, um, especially to those of you uh, not celebrating Christmas. Um, sorry that we subjected you to a, a whole long hour of Christmas talk. Um, you but knew what was coming. Obviously, we're all living under the regime of Christmas, uh, even if we don't celebrate it. Big Santa. Um, big Santa's watching. Absolutely. But yeah, happy holidays to everyone. Um, thanks for tuning in to us all year here on Reverb. Uh, any any final 2020 notes from either of you, Alex or Sophie, to the listeners? Glad it's over. Um, I don't know if 2021 is going to be better, but I, I know that I know that Reverb's coming with us to 2021. And that alone gives me uh, gives me hope and solace. I'm looking forward to more shows with uh, with my co-producers in the new year. I am too. Looking forward to what what's in store for the new year. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much. Uh, less ho ho no and more ho ho yes, right? Um, yes, absolutely. That's right. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, happy holidays to everybody, and uh, we will talk to you very soon here on Reverb. Bye, everybody. Happy holidays. Our show today was produced and edited by Calvin Pollock, Alex Helberg, and Sophie Watson, with editing done by me, Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producer is Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for listening.